Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, please give us grace as we learn yet more from the example of Paul and Lord, help us to respond to the idols of our day in the way that he responded to those of his. Help us to not be enamored with all that Satan has built with his palaces and his cathedrals and his systems, knowing that all of these are subject to rot and that your Son will bring to ruin everything that the devil has here built on earth. Teach us, Lord. And we pray for those that are still in the throes of idolatry, that are in my hearing, that they would forsake that even today and fly to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17 contains the account of Paul's missionary journey to Thessalonica. And then from there, of course, he goes to Berea. But far and away, this chapter is best known for what occurs at Mars Hill in Athens. And the sermon there preached that begins with Paul's revealing the identity of their previously unidentified, unknown God. And the content of that sermon is truly transcendent, and we will treat it accordingly when we get to it. But in the five verses that directly precede that address, that so profoundly expounds upon the Christian message, there is the testimony of Paul, which so profoundly expounds upon the nature of the Christian perspective in life. Paul's sermon At Mars Hill is what we believe, but Paul's behavior prior to preaching that sermon reveals how we regard idols and teaches us how to live amongst idolaters in light of what we believe. And this will be the subject of our study today. And because there is much to address, we will delay no further in getting to it. We will work our way through the text then forthwith. Continuing our study in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, We will pause for explanation and application as it is prudent to do so. Beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, of course, Athens, Greece remains to this day, unlike some of the other towns that Luke has recently taken us through. This is, in fact, well within the world's top 100 tourist destinations, from what I understand, 
an estimated not quite 7 million people per year visit this city. And I think that I can say, reasonably speaking, that they are all no doubt quite impressed. I think probably many of them are even awed at the art and the architecture of the ancient pagan temples and the ancient pagan monuments. And on this, in case you think that I'm going to call people to repent for appreciating these things, given what they were originally intended to be, I, I actually have no objection. And I don't believe that God does either. And that's because to modern sightseers, the myriad temples in Athens and all the idols there are simply art. And as art, they are objectively magnificent. And further, though they were tragically devoted to false gods, they do nevertheless very well reflect the glory of the true God through the manifesting of his image in his image bearers as they built beautiful things in similitude to his creation of a beautiful world. And further still, I will say that perhaps this beauty needs to be seen even more so now than it did in days past by a civilization whose previous pursuit of a pleasing architectural aesthetic to the glory of God has degenerated to purely utilitarian structures exemplified by modern Walmarts and Dollar Generals. Besides all of this, though, I believe we're permitted this appreciation because the temples of the gods are in ruins and the worshippers are no more. Whatever these things were in the past, at present, all that remains in Athens amounts to collectively a beautiful museum. But spiritually and religiously, it is no more than this. And thus, as beautiful as it is, it still amounts to a consortium of relics testifying to a fallen civilization and their fallen gods. And to whom did they fall, by the way? Well, to our God. And so in that regard, perhaps modern Christians should even celebrate the various structures there all the more. As not just testaments to men's former idolatry, but to Yahweh's supremacy and dominance. However, as we encounter Paul in Acts 17, 16, that process has not yet played out. So he's not in a position to passively appreciate the Parthenon, for example, because the Parthenon wasn't then in a passive state. It still served Athena Parthenos or Athena the Virgin, from whom Athens derives its name. And obviously Parthenon is derived from Parthenos, which supposedly describes again her virtue. But although... Athena was Athens' namesake. She was not nearly the only god or goddess to be found there. In fact, there was not a god in the pantheon who could not be found in Athens, nor outside of it, nor an imperial god, all of whom were commemorated by statues, if not more elaborate memorials. Augustus Tiberius was just one, but there were more. Actually, on the subject and issue of the panoply of gods in Athens, there was a pagan author named Petronius who once quipped that it was easier to find a god in that city than it was a man. And of course, where there are many false gods, there is much wickedness, unless you think that the purported purity of Athena was indicative of the gods generally, and so too perhaps the worship of them. Temple prostitutes were everywhere in this city associated with various different gods and goddesses. There was even a statue of an erect male phallus at one point in the city, which unambiguously testifies to the depravity of the Athenian sexual ethic. But any rate, at any rate, any god or goddess that you wanted, be sure you could find him or her in Athens because Athenians had long pursued being the religious and philosophical one-stop shop 
of the ancient world. And this absolute commitment to recognizing every god possible is seen in their monument to an unknown god that Paul picks up on and uses to segue to the one true god. And also in his statement that they are religious in every respect. That's not a compliment. In verse 22, it's a recognition that they are all over the place when it comes to the practice of religion. In fact, even the public buildings in that city, which fulfilled only civic purposes like offices of taxation or city maintenance, perhaps, all of these were dedicated to one god or another. So then it would seem that the Athenians had no interest in promoting the modern fallacy of separation of church and state. Rather, they reveal what is obviously true, and that is wherever there is a state, there will be a church that dictates the actions of that state because men are fundamentally religious and so our governments will be as well. So it was in Athens, though. Every institution overtly dedicated to false worship of false gods all the time, and this is the environment that Paul has been placed in by the providence of God. And that is what accounts for his emotional state, which is conveyed by the term paroxysmos, which is not the first time that we've encountered this, if you recall. This was used to describe Paul and Barnabas' feelings about each other when they split over John Mark. They had a huge dispute, explosive even, It's not a subtle term that depicts a small response. Not then, not here, now in the Apostle Paul. But I don't actually think that in this instance Luke means for us to connect this back to the dispute between those two men. But rather, I think he means for us to look back into the Septuagint as this is used there as it relates to God's feelings about idolatry. And the Septuagint, of course, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there are multiple examples of the use of this term with respect to idolatry, but here's just one from the issue with the golden calf, Deuteronomy 9:15 through 18, Moses speaking, So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands, and I saw that you had indeed sinned against Yahweh your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which Yahweh had commanded you, and I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and shattered them before your eyes, and I fell down before Yahweh as at the first forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil, and here it is, in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. There is paroxysmos, same term. With all that you have studied of God, Christian, I think you should know something of how he feels about idolatry, especially the idolatry of his own people as occurred with the golden calf. He is a jealous God, and rightly so, and that is why he so severely dealt with that particular sin. So being indwelt by the spirit of that same God, resulting in that same feeling Paul's instinct is not then to reach into his fanny pack for a camera so that he can commemorate his stay in Athens. It is to find a sledgehammer and to do to these idols what his forefather Josiah did to the idols of his day, but rhetorically. And he will do exactly this as we will yet see. But here I want you to understand that this is the only righteous emotional response to this. When you see idolatry In your culture, this is how you're to respond. Not with tolerance. Not with, well, isn't the culture behind this idolatry beautiful though? No. Just with grief-laden, snorting-mad, righteous indignation. 
Paul is feeling all kinds of things in response to the devil's influence in this city. Anger, sorrow, compassion for blind sinners. But what he most certainly is not feeling is impressed. He understands that all of this is just sound and fury and fluted columns and gold overlays signifying nothing but idolatry. It all amounts to rouge on the cheeks of a whore. As a lady of ill repute paints her face to conceal the fact that she is used up, broken, and after seeing too many men to remember, actually quite repulsive, and just then an excellent vector for disease, so false religions put cathedrals and monuments where truth should be, but isn't. To conceal, not to reveal. To lie, not to tell the truth. Now, we will come back to that concept in a bit, but I want you to take a step back with me for a moment. Because in the ugliness of this idolatry, there is something very beautiful revealed about our faith. And to see this, let's compare and contrast for a moment between the simplicity of first century Christianity and the false grandeur of pagan idolatry that is demonstrated in Athens like it is nowhere else in ancient Rome during the same period. And to start, where are we presently meeting for Lord's Day, for prayer, for fellowship, where are the Christians of the first century meeting? Well, we began at Solomon's portico, if you recall, beginning of the book of Acts, and this does, I think, prove that there's nothing inherently unsanctified about a temple location or more of a cathedral kind of a setting. But post-persecution, our brethren have been meeting in the courtyards of large homes belonging to their more affluent members. Uh, Lydia is just one recent example of this. Her home was opened up to the brethren. We noted there that that is surely the beginning of the nascent church there and would probably continue to be their gathering place. But well off as Lydia was, it is certain that her home was no Parthenon nor anything close. No fluted columns, no fancy buttresses, no golden-clad warrior Athena statue, certainly. No Areopagus either, or Hill of Ares, or Mars Hill to adjudicate from on matters of great importance. The Jerusalem Council is one of the greatest councils ever assembled in the Christian faith, arguably the greatest. It settles what even is Christianity in the first place, and that wasn't held at a location anywhere near as grand as we're going to see in this chapter. Now, we had no great stones hand-hewn and meticulously laid, we had something much greater. And that is living stones who comprise the true cathedral of God consisting of sinners made saints by Christ who was for sinners slain. Not an edifice held together by mortises, but by the blood of God's only Son. And I think it is actually very fitting that a religion founded by a man who was born in a cave and placed in a manger would be honored in common homes instead of castles as it was. There is, in fact, you may not know this, but uh, a discussion of whether or not genuine Christians should even ever meet in cathedrals. And the debate centers around whether ornate architecture detracts from the beauty of the gospel's simplicity and maybe serves to confuse parishioners about whether or not they're moved by God's glory or just by aesthetically pleasing houses made with human hands. Oh, I myself vacillate on this a little bit. But what I am certain of is that while Christianity may or may not be practiced in cathedrals, if we do 
practice it in such places. Those structures would reflect the beauty of our faith. They would not represent the sum of what is beautiful about our faith. And that is the difference between Paul's religion and that of the Athenians. If you stripped Athena, for example, of all her accoutrements, who would worship her? Nobody. You need the embellishments to communicate to people that there is something worthy of worship there, that they're supposed to worship now. These embellishments then function something of the way that an applause sign does for a live studio audience in the recording of a sitcom. If the show was that funny, would people need to be told to laugh at a certain point? No. If the gods were so worthy of worship, would people need all of this to communicate that? No. Do you remember how the ancient Israelites used to stack stones of remembrance in certain locations? You remember this practice? What did these stones commemorate? Mighty acts of God. Stack stones commemorated the place where God enabled Israel to supernaturally cross the Jordan under the ministry of Joshua. Stones commemorated the Passover. It's one of the greatest miracles of God. Greatest miracles, one of them, that was ever performed in God's creation. But in contrast, there were lots of stones stacked upon each other in Athens, but neither Athena nor Zeus nor Ares nor Hermes nor Asclepius nor Diana nor any of the rest ever rescued a single soul, ever did anything because they're deaf, dumb, blind machinations of human minds. But they had grand buildings. Yeah, they had grand buildings, but not to house the divine to convince the naive of a divine presence that wasn't actually there. We, in contrast, do not need the show because we actually have God. Well, for example, did anybody dismiss the rushing wind and tongues as a fire because this happened in a simple and rented or donated upper room? No. They didn't care about the place because when you have real, you don't need a palace to house it all in. And you all don't dismiss what happens here in this place, I hope, because it's stripped of the embellishments common to the false Christianity of our age. Because what is preached and prayed and sung in this church is what saved your soul from the wrath of God. And it is what radically changed your affections and took you from darkness to light. We have real. But when you don't have real, you better have a real good show. And that's why Satan has so adorned Athens and has made her so aesthetically impressive. And Paul is picking up on all of this, which is why instead of awe, he is incensed. That Satan has dared to erect such structures in opposition to the living God. And being as unimpressed as Samson was with the Philistine temple, Paul, like Samson, seeks to tear these temples down too, but he uses what Christ has given him, which is something far stronger than Samson's might. It is the message of the gospel. Verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. I want you to hone in for a second on that statement, those who happened to be present. And I want to ask you, in light of that, in a world governed by a sovereign God, does anybody actually happen to be present anywhere? The answer, of course, is no. But as I say that, I'm not offering a corrective for Luke because he's not offering us a statement on God's sovereignty. He is 
simply making a statement on a lack of concerted intentionality on the part of these people as well as he is speaking from his own human perspective in the way that men commonly do. But of course God is planning and orchestrating. The point is here that men are not. The world is simply being wicked. It's another day that ends in Y for them. And Paul is simply being a Christian minister in a fallen world and responding organically to his changing surroundings. And this begins in this account in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Obviously, Luke records that because it bears significantly upon Paul's coming response. This is the impetus for what comes next. And it didn't happen per Paul's schedule, and it wasn't the result of some deliberate religious exercise. You might say that Paul was sitting at a bus stop, or Paul was waiting in line at the grocery store, or Paul was sitting in the lobby of his dentist's office. And because Paul was not immersed in the ancient equivalent of some stupid smartphone, he notices the unrighteous of the city, which encourages all the more his righteous response, which is the preaching of the gospel. So I want to give you three observations that I think should be made from verses 16 and 17. Okay? First is this. Paul is paying attention. Paul's paying attention. He's present as he is perceptive, and this gives him an appreciation for the specific perception perspectives of the people in Athens, which enables him to respond to them in a thoughtful and personal way, which he will do in his sermon, which you will see when we get there. Able to speak to them where they are because he has taken the time to observe where they are. Second, Paul's soul has not become numb to evil just because evil is ubiquitous. Consider the fact that he is incensed paroxysmos as he is, but this isn't his first rodeo. He's not like Telemachus. You remember that example that I used? He goes into the Roman cathedral in the name of Christ. Stop in response to the Roman gladiators who are killing themselves. That's a wonderful response, but he responds that way because he's shocked. He's never seen anything like that. He's never seen wickedness like that. And so he responds appropriately. Paul has seen wickedness like this. This is not the first time. The idolatry of Athens is exceptional. It is not unique, though. It's been this way in every city that he's ministered in. Antioch, Philippi, on and on and on. But Paul never became, as Pink Floyd said, comfortably numb. Because to become numb as a Christian isn't a sign of maturation. It's a sign of ossification of hardening to the things that you used to be able to feel but no longer can because you've become so accustomed to this context. Now, it is hard to continue to feel in a world that is as unfeeling as the one in which we live. But as Paul did, we must. Jesus had seen a lot of evil. He had seen a lot of rebellion and a lot of unbelief, but he still wept over Jerusalem. Paul grieves the state of Athens, spiritually speaking, having seen much evil. And we must continue to grieve the state of the United States of America at present. And this grief must also manifest in action. And that is a critical point. And that leads me to my last observation here. And that is that Paul's righteous indignation has borne the fruit that righteous indignation always bears if it is actually righteous, and that is righteous 
action, which is, of course, in this instance and for us as well, the preaching of the gospel. And that is the difference, I think, between righteous anger and unrighteous whining. We have lots of the latter in this culture. We have many people who can actually properly diagnose what is wrong with our society, people who even know how to fix it, but people who don't care enough about fixing it to get their rear ends unaffixed from their couches and do something about it. And I will say that I don't think knowing what the problem is and knowing how to fix it and doing nothing about it makes you better off than if you didn't know in the first place. I think it's quite the contrary. I think your culpability before the Lord grows. Indeed, what an evil to be able to understand the way that the world is degenerating into wickedness, to have the means of being able to affect that for a positive good and to do nothing about it but complain. What I'm saying is don't lie to yourself, friend. If your grief over the lost condition of your neighbors does not result in fervent prayer for them and a faithful gospel witness to them, then your grief isn't real. Once I was confronted about an attitude I did not know that I had towards sodomites, I knew that they disgusted me. I knew that I was disgusted by them. I did not realize that I hated them to the point where, as far as I was concerned, they could burn in hell. But I ended up in a conference, and a man was preaching a sermon, and the room got real small, and I realized what I had done. And I repented before the Lord for my godless attitude with respect to them. Then I got back, and I was giving the gospel all the time, and I had the occasion to to witness to um, sodomites in particular, once I was on the street and there was a, an extremely tall transvestite, and this was after this, after I'd repented, and I thought to myself, am I going to give the gospel to this gentleman? And I said, you're doggone right. You are to this tube-top, miniskirt-wearing lost man. Yes. And I did. But then I also, I, I thought, you know, I don't know that many sodomites even so i run into them every now and again i'd like to be able to give the gospel to more so i figured there's got to be a center for people like this and so i looked it up on google very carefully and uh, sure enough lgbtq headquarters in cleveland i was able to go i accidentally by the providence of god ended up in a uh, gay man's support group i was supposed to go to the community day but i've told some of you this story before I just sat there. I didn't really realize what was happening until it was too late. And then they started, and I said, uh, I have a confession to make before this goes any further. I am not a homosexual. I am happily married to a woman. I went in the wrong color door because they're all the colors of the rainbow. I came here to give the gospel to all of you, and uh, if you will permit me to stay, I will do that. And then I sat there for a long time, and they did permit me to stay after quite a debate. And in the end, they turned to me and said, Austin, what do you think about all of this? Just like that. I'm not making that up. And I gave them the gospel just like I give it to you every single week, and they all thanked me, and it was a wonderful experience. But the point of that story is that grief 
over the lost condition of the world needs to result in action as it did for Paul. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. Continuing, though, in verse 18, you will see that the art and architecture is not all that Athens boasts of, but also they are vaunted intellectuals. Pick up in verse 18, we'll go as far as verse 21. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him before the, or brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are speaking, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something newer. Now there's a lot there, but first I want you to understand that well in the first century, Corinth had supplanted Athens as the cultural hub of the ancient world. Athens still very much held its place as the philosophical and thus intellectual center of the universe as far as Greco-Roman civilization was concerned. And this, of course, was due to its history. Athens had been hometown of perhaps three of the most influential philosophers in the history of the human race, and this would be Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And there were many more celebrated philosophers besides these who hailed from this place, one of whom was a man named Epicurus. And that sounds like Epicureanism because he is the founder of it. And Epicureanism is, of course, referenced in verse 18. Now, the Epicureans were practical atheists. Technically, theologically, you may say, they did not deny the existence of the gods, but their emphasis was upon the material existence with no concept even of anything like an afterlife. The Stoics, on the other hand, pursued self-mastery. They conceived of indifference, effectively, as being a high ideal, a high virtue. I think if you take the nirvana out of this as an end goal, you can liken them in some ways to Buddhists. Not being too low, not being too high, really kind of being unmoved. That is the objective of Buddhism. Also, similar to Buddhists, they were pantheists, which is not to say that Buddhists are technically pantheists, that God is in everything, but that's sort of how it works out to be. Buddhists really like that statement that you hear from atheists now. Isn't it wonderful to think that we're all stardust and connected to the furthest reaches of the universe? I think it's nihilistic and deeply depressing, but... That's what you think. That's basically, though, the perspective of the Stoics. And these are the intellectual paragons of their age. And so as such, how do you think they feel about the Jew from Tarshish? Well, you might say they are less than impressed, as demonstrated by what would this idle babbler wish to say? If you think that's an insult in English, believe me, it's more insulting in Greek. That is one word in the original language. It is spermologos, and it is literally rendered seed picker, and it refers to the eating pattern of birds as they eat seeds off of the ground. If you have birds, I have chickens, and I have watched them graze, and they do not graze in a particularly discerning, deliberate way. They just sort of peck indiscriminately, and that indiscriminate pecking is exactly the image that these Athenians mean to invoke here. They are accusing Paul of lacking intellectual consistency, 
of not possessing a cohesive worldview, of not having a disciplined mind capable of rational systemization. In other words, and to speak plainly, they think he's dumb. And this is not helped by the fact that they are not picking up what he is putting down. Seems like they think resurrection is perhaps a reference to a god and the proper name of a goddess. Thus they say he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, plural. That's not some sort of a misapprehension of the nature of the Trinity because by appearance he's not speaking about that. But rather they seem to have misunderstood anastasis or resurrection again as being the proper name of perhaps a goddess, Anastasia. Anastasis, in fact, or anastasis, in fact, means ana re stasis, uh, life, remade, referring to the raising of our Lord from the dead, but they have misunderstood. Furthermore, the statement they make that Paul is a proclaimer of strange deities is a dangerous accusation. They don't just think he's dumb, they think he's potentially criminal. Four centuries prior to the events that we are studying now, the aforementioned Socrates was executed in this town by a council just like this for the same crime. Now, all of this properly contextualizes what's about to happen at Mars Hill, which if you thought in the past the cursory reading of this that this was a group of sincere seekers trying to acquire the truth, it is very much not that. They regard Paul as an idiot and also a potential criminal worthy of execution. But, we'll say, this is not one of those circumstances of unrequited affections because it goes the other way too. Feeling is mutual in certain respects. Neither Paul nor Luke have any respect at all for their supposed vaunted intellects. And that is obvious by Paul's clear lack of intimidation. He just gets up and he preaches the gospel. He doesn't have the credentials and he doesn't care anything about theirs. And you can see this also in the content of his address to them. He refers to them as wise, as uh, possessing great wisdom? No, he refers to them as ignorant. Looking ahead to next week's passage, verses 22 and 23. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Are these the words, and is this the approach of a man who is fawning over their celebrated learning? No, it is not. That seed-picker accusation, I think, could go two ways. Say that feeling is mutual. Furthermore, the observation that they are very religious in all respects is not a compliment. Paul regards them as being about as discerning as a 400-pound man in an all-you-can-eat buffet. What determines what he eats is what he can get in his face the fastest. The way that they worship is equally as undiscerning. Nor is his observation that they are so superstitious that they even have an altar to an unknown God just in case they missed one a compliment. They are the ones who have no intellectual discipline or consistency or cohesion. This then is a classic case of projection. And Luke seconds this, verse 21 again. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something newer. This is a circumstance we know something about in our age, don't we? Perhaps these people are even lightweights in comparison to our contemporaries. Give us novelty, they say. I have encountered many people like this 
One of the more funny accounts of this, at least I found it funny, was a gentleman that I originally encountered on the campus of CSU. I had given him the gospel there, but I don't think we talked deeply. I didn't really get into his philosophical perspective. And then I ran into him later as I was given the gospel at uh, Tower City, outside of Tower City in downtown Cleveland. And I said, so, you know, what's your religious perspective? What are your religious views, philosophical views? And he said, I'm a dualist. And immediately I thought, no, you're not. No, you're not. Nobody in modern-day America is. You saw a yin-yang sign on somebody's T-shirt and thought it was a cool thing to build your life on, apparently. You don't actually believe that. You're a first- or second-year philosophy student. But then he went on to explain that he had also mashed this together with Christianity. And uh, so I said, okay, so you believe as a dualist that good and evil have to coexist alongside of each other. One cannot be without the other. And yet you also believe in the biblical God. And he said, yes. And I said, so you believe that God created the devil? Yes. God is only good and the devil is evil? Yes. And God pre-existed the devil? And he said, yes. And then he went, oh, I see what you did there. And I said, all I did, friend, is repeat what you believe and state it out loud. That is an example of just believing something novel for the sake of believing something novel. And that is what these men do. There's no cohesion. There's no consistency. Everything is self-refuting and internally inconsistent and self-contradictory. Uh, these men are lost souls that deserve compassion and those like them in our day as well. They are men made in God's image that deserve to be treated with respect, but they are wicked fools. And their foolishness, just like the grand aesthetic of their myriad religions, deserves no respect from us whatsoever. You ever been around a Christian who's intimidated to give the gospel to somebody on account of their worldly credentials? Or maybe I just described you. Because how can we compete? They know so much. They use words that we don't know. They are so wise. If you're thinking that way, Christian, be real careful because God has a very different perspective on people like this. Proverbs 1, seven: the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. If you don't begin with God, you don't have any wisdom, which means that Psalm 14.1 is about you. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Not the wise, not the debater of this age, not the revered intellectual, the fool. And think in terms of our day. Think about Richard Dawkins, one of the world's most eminent biologists. Tell me, how wise can you be concerning biology when you subscribe to a system of belief wherein all biological matter simply sprang into being, completely negating any biological practice or process, having no cause, even though every consequence ever observed had a cause? That is a myth and a fable. It is not science. And it is not a position befitting a man who thinks himself to be wise. Leonard Krauss, you may not know that name. He is a leading cosmologist. And the man believes that the cosmos sprang from nothing. 
That's not wisdom. That's foolishness and folly. There's actually an old video of Dawkins. I think many of you have seen this. They pass this around the internet. And he's just talking to a group of normal people in front of a group of normal people, not the yes men that he's used to. And he goes into this lengthy discussion about the nature of nothing. Have you seen this one? It's important to define nothing because nothing is the beginning of everything according to his worldview. And he's going on and on and on. And the crowd starts to laugh. And he looks up and he says, I don't, he's genuinely confused. I don't know why, why are you all laughing? And the moderator, who was a religious man, says something like, I think they just find it funny to see you going on and on trying to define nothing in that way. It was an emperor had no clothes moment. And the emperor doesn't have any clothes. And you need to recognize that when you're talking about the philosophies of men. As the ancient Greeks had cathedrals to make evil and idiocy seem divine, the so-called intellectuals of our day have credentials and jargon. They twist language. They invent words. And then they use those words in a way to intimidate thinking people into believing that they don't know what they actually know. Long time ago, before I was disabused of any notion that any of these people really possessed any meaningful wisdom, was listening to Sam Harris speak. And he denounced the category of the supernatural. And we Christians are stupid for believing in something called the supernatural, accepting anything like miracles or anything like that. And then he went on, though, to explain that there were natural processes that could not be explained in nature. And then he defined this category as phenomenological, to which I thought, wait a minute, did you just say that supernatural doesn't exist as a category and then take that category and rename it something completely different just so that you could denounce us and call us idiots even though you're taking our concept from us? Indeed he had. All just lipstick on a pig, rouge on a prostitute. Do not be fooled by this. You have the wisdom of God, Christian. You should never fear the wisdom of men. Remember, 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll start in verse 18 and go through verse 31. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And that perspective right there is why Paul is about to get up and give a message so simple anybody in this room could have given it. And that's why you stay on that message. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how smart you think they are. Doesn't matter how high and lofty the vocabulary that they use is. They need the gospel. This is wisdom. If you whittle down every perspective of man, it is all fully and foolish, folly and foolishness. There's a great account from the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'll end with this, where he was invited to speak to a group of intellectuals, and they were in the habit of inviting a different preacher every week to do this. And so he gave up, and he, he got up, and he gave him the gospel, and this man is a, a well-regarded intellect. He was a highly esteemed surgeon prior to going into the ministry. Very, very smart, very intelligent. And yet one of the people who heard him came up to him afterwards and said, you know, we have different men come in here every week and they speak to us and they try to meet us where we are or where they think we're at because we are intellectuals and they really just seem out of their depth and out of their league. But you just came in here and spoke to us like we were sinners. Yep. The wisdom of the world is not wisdom at all. Just give them the gospel, Christian. And know that your toddler child, if they can discern enough about the gospel to be able to repeat that simple plan of salvation, has more wisdom in that than all of those men combined. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you that you are the true source of wisdom in the universe. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel and its power to save sinners and the fact that it casts down all that claims to be wise outside of it and in this pagan world. And we praise you and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.